We do have a guest preacher. His name is Dr. Bruce Hebel. He's the president of Regenerating Life Ministries, author of Forgiving Forward, uh, teaches people what it means to forgive and how to do it biblically um, across the world. And uh, he is my dad, and more importantly, the papa to my, grand, my, ch my children. So um, it's a privilege to have him here, and I'm looking forward to what the Lord has for us uh, through him today. So, uh, Dad. Uh, it is uh, always good to come see our grandkids and their two caretakers, who we used to refer to as son and daughter-in-law. Uh, there is a shift when that happens. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, honored to be here. I just want to begin by thanking you for loving our uh, grandkids and kids so well and uh, uh, love what God is doing in and through Andrew and T and the uh, the kids and the way that you guys have loved on them has been very special to Tony and I. It matters a lot to us, so we want to thank you. Uh, and so we're going to we're going to kind of dive into this in just a second. But I want to begin with prayer uh, because I don't think you need to hear what I have to say, and I think we all need to hear what God has to say through His text and through His His servant. So, if we could just gather our minds together and just submit and yield to what God is speaking wants to say to us today. Uh, then we'll all walk out of here maybe somewhat closer to Jesus and a little bit different in the way we walk. And that's our goal. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the privilege of sharing your word. Thank you for your cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the fact that we can come together freely and we can celebrate what you have done in us collectively together. And we can... Um, we can allow your spirit collectively as we hear your word to not only change our minds, but because our minds are renewed, our lives are, are transformed uh, and we're renewed to the way you want us to live. So I pray that you will just be in me everything that's needed in this space today so that, that your word will speak clearly through your servant to your people uh, so that we will all be changed because of our time together. And that only happens if you do it. And so we yield to you. May your grace flow freely in this message. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. And God's people said, amen. amen. Um, I'm moving this, sorry. Um, it, it's on, it, I thought it There we go. Yep, yep, I got, unfortunately, the mute was on. Sorry. Y'all hear me now? Can you hear me now? Uh, I was curious one day and probably somewhat bored, and I, so I Googled a question. Uh, how many religions are there in the world? How many religions are there in the world? And, and one site said there's 750 million individual religious groups. And I'm thinking, that's crazy. And then I realized all of us know a boss that thinks they're God, so there's that. Uh, <laughs> But, but David Barton Barrett of the Christian World Encyclopedia said that there's 19 major religions. There are 270 subdivided large religious groups. And there, here's what's sad. There's 34,000 separate Christian groups. 
which kind of challenges that they'll know you're my disciples by your oneness, right? There, there's a, religions are all over the place, and every one of the religions, if you boil them down, if you examined all of them, which I have not done, but I, I'm confident of this truth, that if you boil them all down, they all, there'll, there'll be a, a, a unifying, there'll be one central common denominator around religions, sin management. What do we do about our sin problem? And, and there's always some structure, some deity somewhere that we have to appease and, and we have to make our mistakes right with. And so in different groups, it may be over 50%. Sometimes it's over 70%, maybe 75 In some place, maybe even you get 95% right, he'll cover the slack. But we have to manage our sin to appease whatever deity it is. But that's not the gospel. Religion says, what do we do about our sin problem? But the gospel is about what Jesus has already done about our sin problem. You see, we can't really do anything for Jesus. So therefore, we must do everything in Jesus, out of our relationship with Jesus. Uh, back when Andrew was at Cairn University, he had a study abroad. They have a study abroad arrangement with Jerusalem University College, and Andrew was able to go and take 18 credit hours of biblical history, biblical history and geography on location in Israel. And as a pastor, I had a little bit of envy of my son when he was learning that, but it was awesome because at the end of his time, the the, the other four of us, his older brother and younger sister and Tony and I, were able to get go there to Israel before he came home. And one of the coolest things I've ever done as a dad is to rent a car in Israel and hand the keys to my son and say, son, show us Israel. And Andrew was able to take us places he had learned. And, and awesome experience as a, as a family. And uh, one of the the highlights for me was we went up to northern Israel, north of Galilee, in the Dan area of Israel, uh, to a place called, used to be called Caesarea uh, Philippi. It's now called Banyas, but originally it was called Panyas. It was an area in, in Israel where the Ptolemaic kings uh, built these temple shrines to the Greek gods, and the primary shrine in this area was the temple of Pan. Now, Pan was the half-man, half-goat Greek god who was a god of flocks and shepherds uh, for victory and fertility. And the, 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 this was located at the foot of Mount Hermon's, uh, created in the third century, and it was the cultic center of this area. Remember, the Ptolemy was the, one of the four kings uh, or, or, or lieutenants of, of Alexander who divided the kingdom, and, and he set up this worship center for that area of his kingdom to worship the Greek gods. It's a center of pagan worship in Israel. And the worship of Pan involved sexuality as well as with all the nymphs and all sorts of wild stuff and human and animal sacrifices. And the way they would sacrifice is this was there's this 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 hole here, this cave, it's it's called a grotto. 
right? And it, it, the difference between a cave and a grotto is a, cave, a grotto has a river or stream or some water inside of it. And so when they would do sacrifice, they would, that's actually the temple up there. This big hole here is the grotto. They would put the body in the river and for it to be washed away. And that river was considered one of the uh, headwaters to the river Styx in the mythology, was, which was the river de, to Hades. And that grotto was actually called the Gates of Hades. And here's, here's, the, here's what they would do. If the body that they were sacrificing disappeared and there was no evidence, it didn't pop back up, or down in a bo- little lower on the Mount Hermon, there was a stream that came out, which actually was one of the four headwaters that formed the Jordan River, or is one of the four headwaters that forms the Jordan River. If there was water coming or blood coming out of that, or if a body was popping up, then they were, the, the, the sacrifice wasn't accepted. But if it was cleaned down and the body didn't show up, Pan evidently was happy. So this mystical mythology around this center, this place, it's interesting that this is where Jesus took his disciples. And, and maybe the last, the most northern thing he did from this point, it says he made his way to Jerusalem for the crucifixion. So in Matthew 16, this is the setting, this is the backdrop when Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say I am? Well, they, got, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah, uh, others are one of the prophets, and so it's like the the disciples saying, people are all over the place about who you are, Jesus. They had not figured you out yet. And so Jesus looked at the, the, the guys he'd been training for three years, and he said, so uh, who do you say that I am? Kind of a pop quiz. And Peter makes this clear declarative statement, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the, co- the sent one, the coming one, the one we've been looking for, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right, Peter. You get the gold star on this one. You're blessed. But flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, you didn't, you didn't get the, this didn't come because you looked in the river and the body didn't pop up. Or you look down and didn't see blood. No, no, it's not flesh and blood. It's not this mythological construct that we're standing in front of in this citadel of pagan worship in northern Israel. No, no, it was the Father himself who told you this. God is telling you this truth. And upon this rock, which is kind of a double entendre, right? In the... In the face, at the center, the stronghold of pagan worship on this mountain called Mount Hermon and upon this declaration that you just made. So it's a rock and a place and I think it is the declaration. I'm going to build my church. You're not going to build my church, Peter. I'm going to build my church. 
and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not keep me out. Because no body that ever went came back alive. I'm going in dead. I'm coming out alive. And I'm going to build my church. And it's not going to be like the pagan worship. It's not going to be like anything else you've ever seen. It's going to be me coming out of the grave. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing will, de will, will defeat me. Now, uh, this is not the imagery. Some people say that I'm going to storm the gates of hell. No, we don't need to storm the gates of hell. The gates of hell have been broken. The gates of hell were not to keep people out. It was to keep people in. And Jesus said, I'm going to break through the gates of hell, and I'm coming out, and I'm bringing my saints with me. And I'm the one who's doing it. Jesus chose this place, the center of pagan worship, to make the declaration that, about himself in his church. Peter's declaration was not some pagan superstition, but it was from God himself, and the pagan strongholds will not stop us. So we can look at the world today and we go, man, we are a mess. We're a mess. But God wins. Because Jesus won, and we're going to win and we have to live out of the reality that that's where our victory comes from. It comes from Jesus' victory. It comes from the grace of God that has flowed onto us and through us and out of us. And that's where our victory comes in the way we live our lives. So here's the big idea, a big takeaway of the message that we're about to get into. We maintain our relationship with Christ. And with God, the same way we receive it, by grace, through faith. By grace, through faith. Because we can't do anything for Christ, we must do everything in Christ and out of Christ. It's interesting, uh, I think if you've been around church for any length of time, you could probably quote the verse I'm about to tell you. It's one of the, it's one of the big ones that we always remember, right? And it's Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been, what, you remember it? I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I'm not living, it's Christ living in me. But the life I'm now living, which sounds like I'm living it, but I'm not really living it. I'm living it in the flesh. I'm living it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And we're all going, amen, this is awesome. Amen. But we don't always, most people don't know what the next verse is or what the next chapter begins with. Because it says in verse 21, it says, for if righteousness comes through the law, in other words, if you could do it yourself, if you can maintain it, then Christ died needlessly. Literally, the word means for no good reason. <laughs> Christ wasted his time coming if you could make your life work. Then he shifts into chapter 3, which is not in, it's actually not chapter 3 in when Paul wrote it because he didn't do a chapter thing, but, and it kind of flows straight into it. It says, you foolish Galatians. And I think that word literally is idiotes, which means idiot. You idiots. Who bewitched you? Before whose eyes was Jesus Christ publicly betrayed as crucified? Okay, you saw him. You have witnesses. You have people who have told you all about this, that Jesus was publicly crucified. I want to ask you a question, he says. Next verse. This is the only thing I want to know. Did you receive the Spirit 
by the works of the law or by hearing by faith? Nobody worked their way up. That's what religion says. you got to work your way up and maybe God will help you. But that's not what this is. It's by hearing that the grace of God has been extended and by faith we're receiving it. That's how it happens. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? I mean, you gotta, you, you got to end the same way you start. Next verse. Is that it? Is that all I have? Okay, I'm sorry. So what is he saying here? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to manage your own sin? See, grace not only delivers us from hell, grace makes us fit for the kingdom. Grace doesn't just bring us to relationship with God. It helps us live according to the relationship with God. Mercy says we don't, mercy covers our sin. It means we're not getting the punishment we deserve. Grace is what teaches us and empowers us to live consistent with the deliverance we've received in Christ. It teaches us to not repeat the sin that the mercy covers, which leads us into Titus chapter 2, which is our key verse for today. You see, grace not only frees us from sin, it frees us for righteousness. Uh, and, and you know, we were never designed, it was never our design to figure out the way to work our life out and make it work. It was never our, we were never actually designed. God did not create man for us to concern ourselves with right from wrong. Did you know that? Yeah, you're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. As a parent, that's my job. Teach my kids right from wrong. That's not the original plan. Because when God created man in his image and put him in the garden, chapter 2 talks about how Adam was just the man at the time, was placed in the garden, says, govern the earth, out of the earth, and the earth will cooperate with you. It will be your partner in everything, and it will go well. But, out of, but I want you to govern the earth out of your relationship with me. Because if you're doing it out of your relationship with me, it will always be right. It will never be wrong. So you don't need to know the knowledge of good and evil. So don't go eat from that one tree because you don't need it. Out of your relation with God, it will always be right. It will never be wrong. Because God's holy, right? And all that he is, thinks, says, and does is totally good and right and totally free from evil of any kind. So God designed us. So when the serpent came to Eve, what was the temptation? To eat from the tree. Why? So you, if you eat from it, you will be like God, right? God knows you. They you eat of it, you'll be like him. What were they already? Like him. So the temptation was to do something to become what God has already declared us to be. Well, I think the biggest temptation in the spiritual life is to do something to become what God has already declared us to be, righteous. And that's because we don't really understand grace. Because grace is defined, I think, the clearest in Scripture here in Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
instructing us or teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and resort, exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In other words, don't let anyone blow smoke at this teaching. This is central. Let no one denounce it or lead you away from it. You teach this. This is the core concept of the gospel message, that the grace of God has appeared. Now, I think grace is, there's a lot of misinformation about grace. I think grace, like other spiritual significant terms, are being redefined in our culture, right? Love means you accept everybody for what they are and who they are with no questions. That's not love. Love is giving someone what they need most when they deserve at least at great personal sacrifice. And sometimes what people need most is admonition. But we also have a different view of grace, right? Grace means it's all covered. Doesn't matter if you sin, it's all covered. Come to Jesus, he'll accept you as you are, and everything will be great. Well, that's only half true. Because grace will accept you where you are, but it lo God loves you enough to leave you there. You cannot say, I follow Jesus and then live like you used to live. Because that's the definition of grace. Now let's look at, let's break this down and understand the def what, 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 what he's talking about when he talks about grace here. He says, the grace of God has appeared. Let's logically work this out. It's appeared. Well, a concept doesn't appear, so it can't be a concept. It's got to be an object or a being, right? So, Because objects and beings appear. The grace of God has appeared. You can see it. Bringing something. Well, bringing means it's not an object because objects carry things. People bring things. Uh, bringing implies intent. Uh, a, a wagon can carry it, but if I say to, uh, to uh, my grandson, can you bring that to me? Well, he's technically carrying it, but he's making the choice to, uh, to do what Papa says and go get it and bring it to him. Bringing implies personality and personhood. All right, so we're talking about a person. Grace is a person. Who, which person? Who person? Who is it? He's bringing, sal what's he bringing? Salvation to all men. Well, who's the only one who brings salvation? Jesus. So Jesus is by definition, or grace is by definition Jesus. It's one of his names. So we talk about grace. Here, he's talking about Jesus. A.W. Tozer said this, the Apostle Paul, who beyond all others is the exponent of grace in redemption, never disassociates God's grace from God's crucified Son. Always in his teaching, the two are found together organically, one, and inseparable. You can't talk about God's grace without talking about Jesus. It is Jesus is grace. So what does he do? What is, what is, he, he's appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And how does that work out? Does he say, oh, everything's covered, y'all be good? No. It says he's teaching, uh, teaching us or instructing us 
to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, godly, and right, or righteously and godly in this present age. Literally, he's saying the grace of God is training us, is instructing us, it's teaching us to say no to sin and yes to God. To say no to ungodliness, that which is not like God, and worldly desires, which is where you, we, we used to be connected, but we have been separated from, and say yes to God. Yes, to live sensibly, which literally means under self-control, under control, not just doing whatever you want, but there's a, there's a control on our life now. And righteously literally means holy, set apart for God. And godly literally means reverently. It means to recognize the grandeur and the glory of who God is. And because of what he's delivered me from, I'm going to live a life that reflects his glory and yields to him and honors him because of who he is, not only in the cosmos, but in my life. The grace of God has appeared to teach us to say no to sin and yes to God. So if someone's teaching a grace that says you can come and still embrace sin, they're not understanding grace. Because the reason Jesus had to die was because we need to be separated from our sin so we can be restored in a holy relationship with God. You follow me? You seeing this? That God is saying no to sin, grace is saying no to sin, grace is saying yes to God's lead, to God's righteousness, to God's a lifestyle that reflects his identity and his holiness and his purity. Why? What's our motivation for that? Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace is a force for the glory of God. It's looking for the blessed hope. What is hope? In the, it, the biblical word for hope literally means a settled assurance of our guaranteed future deliverance in Christ. Here he's talking about the assurance that we will see Jesus in all of his glory. In other words, Jesus is coming back. Now, a lot of people are saying he's coming back soon, and I'm, I'm not sure because the history is, is strewn with people who've made strong predictions that Jesus is coming back. And I don't know if he's coming back now, but if he's not coming back now, he's missing a really good opportunity. <laughs> but what keeps us living for him, what, one of the things that keeps us motivated is we know he's coming. And he's coming and he wins at the end. And he's winning now. And we can live out of that victory. And we can know he's, he, he conquered sin, death, and hell. And he's going to conquer everything in the future. And he's conquering in us now. So we can live, we can say no, and we can say yes, because he's coming. He's, and he's coming. He's not sitting in it. He's coming. Jesus is coming. And what's he, what's, what's he doing? What's he preparing us for? What's he doing now and what's he going to be doing then? He, he, he says he gave himself. 
What's an interesting term, right? He gave himself. If you want to boil the gospel down, if you look at John 3, 16, the gospel is simply this. God loved, God gave. He loved us enough that he gave his son. Well, what did he give his son to do? He gave himself for us. That he, not us, he might redeem us from every lawless deed. What does the word redeem mean? The word redeem means to buy back, to obtain release through a payment or a price, to ransom something. Literally, he's talking about giving something, sacrificing something to purchase that which is already yours. You understand? Redeeming means you're claiming that which is yours. Great Old Testament model for that is in Hosea, where, you know, Gomer, the Hosea's wife, went and, 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 and played the prostitute. And God told Hosea to go redeem her from the auction block. He bought, paid someone for that which was already his. So that he might redeem us, buy us back from sin, and purify for himself to make clean, to cleanse for himself. Now here's a, here's a big question. Who does a purification in your life? You or him? It's his job. In fact, he's already done it, and he keeps doing it, right? He, 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 it's his job to purify us, and why? For us? No, for himself. A people for his own possession, zealous, eager, anxious, enthusiastically driven to good works. You see this? The grace of God appeared, teaches us to say no to sin, yes to God, because we're looking for the hope, because Jesus is the one who gave himself, and he's the one who redeemed us, bought us back. He's the one who purified us. Because of all of that, we become eager, grateful servants wanting to honor the sacrifice Jesus made for us. So we live yielded to him, purifying us and empowering us through his strength, through the spirit of God to live a life consistent with Christ and who he has made us to be. See, the goal of the life of grace is to be so intimately connected with the life of Jesus that our lives are lived out of the overflow of his life as a life of devotion and gratitude. It's to be so connected, abiding so intimately with Jesus that our lives naturally reflect that relationship. It's not working for Jesus. It's Jesus working through us. Uh, back in the day, uh, there was a craze. Everybody wore bracelets or bumper stickers or something. Y'all may remember it. What would Jesus do? WWJD. How many of y'all bought that stuff? I'm so sorry you wasted your money. <laughs> there are three theological problems with what would Jesus do? First problem, what would Jesus do implies Jesus isn't here, right? What would Jesus do if he were here? That's kind of the implication, right? 
Well, Jesus is never not here. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're walking with Jesus, I mean, if you're one of Jesus, if you've been redeemed by Jesus, he's never not here. He said, I will never leave you or I'll never forsake you. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Jesus is never not here. So the implication is he's not here is a bad implication. He's here. He's never not here. It's impossible for him to not be here. Second problem. If Jesus weren't here ever, which he will never not be here, because he said he'd never not be here, he's always going to be here. So he's, he's, he's always here. But in case he decided to sleep in one day, we could figure out what Jesus would do if he weren't here, which he's, he is, by the way. We're not that smart. None of us are that smart. Even Chip isn't that smart. We, nobody can figure this out. Third problem, if there was a time that Jesus slept in, which he's never going to sleep, he never slumbers or sleeps, but in case he didn't show up one day and like a blind squirrel finds an acorn every once in a while, we could stumble upon what Jesus might do if he were here, which he is, by the way, but, but we, that, 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 that we could pull it off. If we were to stumble on what Jesus would do, we could pull. None of us can do it. None of, we could never pull off what Jesus would call us to do, what Jesus would do if he weren't here. So what would Jesus do? Bad concept. I'm okay with the letters. The WWJD, I'm okay with those letters. We just got to reorder them. It's not WWJD, it's JWWD. It's Jesus. What are we doing? Now, it's easier to do this in the South because in the South, we would do what are we, water, that's a word for us. It may not be up here, I don't know, but it is a word in the South, so we're going with it. Jesus, what are we doing? Because Jesus could do anything without us, but he won't. And we can't do anything without him, so we shouldn't try. And we don't lead him, he leads us. So Jesus, be in us everything that's needed. Jesus, what are we doing today? What, Jesus, how do you want us to, how are we supposed to respond to this? Jesus, how, how do you see this? Jesus, how do I, Jesus, what are we doing? In the 17th century, there was a monk. He actually was not a monk. He was a, he was a, a cook's helper in a monastery, which is like the lowest guy on the pecking order, right? His name was Brother Lawrence. But he became known as the most spiritual man in that monastery. Why? How? Because one day he made the decision. My goal in life is this. I want to focus more on the presence of Jesus. I want to, I want to realize, have a realization, and live my life in, in an understanding of the presence of Jesus just a little bit more today than yesterday. 24-7 seems to be a big leap for me from where I'm at. So I just want to add a little bit every day and I'm focusing on Jesus. So I want to focus on him more today than yesterday, more tomorrow than today, more the next day than, yet, than tomorrow. And he chronicled his, his life and what that did for him. And it's a phenomenal read. It's called, there's two, there's two versions of it. It's, it's the practicing the presence of God. I think it's just Brother Lawrence's. And then in the early 20s, 1920s, there was a guy named Frank Laubach, which I think, from what I understand, one of his relatives may have a connection here. 
But he tried the same thing, and he wrote his journal. And those are amazing, transformative mindsets for us to grab. Jesus, I just want to see you in this today. Like a good friend named Alan Wright who just published a book, I just read it, called Seeing as Jesus Sees. How do we, Jesus, how are you see the situation? Jesus, what do you want to do? Jesus, is there something I'm missing in this? Jesus, what's your perspective on this person? Jesus, what are we doing? Jesus, what's your perspective? You see, <laughs> So many were raised to believe that we're just sinners saved by grace. Ever heard that? It's a lie from hell. You cannot be a sinner saved by grace. Because if you're a sinner, you have not been saved by grace. If you've been saved by grace, you're no longer a sinner. You're a saint who sometimes sins. Your identity changes the hypocrisy of the christian life is not that we say we're good and we're not it's that we are good and we act like we're not when we when we don't deny ungodliness when we embrace ungodliness and worldly desires that's the that's the counter that's the falsehood that's the hypocrisy but no we're designed we have been created we've been purified we've been redeemed to live on this side of the table right we're to godly and righteously and holy and all that jesus is he's made us to be in him it's not what we do it's what he's done he started it all he ends it all see performance is not a result of the grace of god it's the other way around oh excuse me performance is a result of the grace of god not the other way around we don't perform our way into God's grace. It's God's grace that changes the way we live because we maintain our relationship with God the same way we receive it by grace through faith. Jesus was kind of forecasting this in Matthew 11 when he's talking about the authority he's been given and all of that and, and, and all that God has called him to do. And he's training his disciples. It's kind of in the third year. He's moving toward the third year in the final training, final teaching, what he's doing to helping them understand how they're supposed to live after he goes. And he says this well-known, well-understood passage when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Now, we need to understand Jesus was considered a rabbi. And a rabbi was a, was, a, was a teacher with a special teaching and understanding of the law. And one of the problems with the rabbinic world was that they all felt like they had to come up with something new. So, you know, Moses had the law, he had the, the, the law, and by the time it got to Jesus, the law, which was like this big, is now this big because all these rabbis have added addendums and, and additions, and, and you want to do this and this and this, and more work, more weight, more things to do in order to make sure we don't mess up the law. And, G, and, and, that, and that new teaching, that new covering of what to do to the law, that was called the rabbi's yoke. So when Jesus says, come to me who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Take my teaching on you. It's new. And, I will, and you'll learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Not a lot of rest with the rabbis. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why? Because I'm doing all the work for you. 
All you do is have faith in the grace I'm giving you. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Burn out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. I love this phrase. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to say no to sin and yes to God, but more than just teaching us, redeeming us, purifying us, empowering us to live a life that reflects Him. And I'm just kind of thinking, that's pretty good news. That's the gospel. It's not us making, managing our sin. It's us realizing that our sin, that sin cannot be managed. It can only be covered. And our empowerment to conquer sin has been given to us through the grace of God, through, his, through the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, who's coming. So let's keep our eyes on Jesus. And let's keep saying, Jesus, how do you see this? Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus, would you be in me everything that's needed in this situation, in this circumstance? And when that happens, you get the glory. Father, thank you for your grace. <laughs>